Welcome to the JMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. We have a great episode today. Today's episode, we have the one and only Johnny Manic from Johnny Manic and the Depressives. This guy is an awesome guy, and I saw him perform live recently at the Sofa Street Festival, and man, he blew me away. And I, I was even more blown away when I went to check out his albums, and man, they're really great albums. So I highly highly suggest everyone if you haven't already to uh, look for johnny manic and the depressives either on youtube itunes and you know what just go to johnnymanic.com and you get all his music available to you right there he's a great guy and it turns out that uh a lot more than than i thought uh pretty much i, I guess i you know usually i try to prepare my best so but sometimes I have no idea what I'm getting myself into until I got the person right here in front of me. We are eye to eye and we're talking it out. Then I realized, holy crap, this guy's a big deal. Like, this guy has been involved on so many great things, uh, worked in the uh, professional music industry. And I was like, wow, what what am I doing here talking to this guy? Who am I? And I think, I think as the conversation keeps going, you could just see me getting quieter and quieter and just ended up going, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, uh, I, I don't even know what question to ask. So, yeah, I got a little insecure, all right? It happens, all right? It happens to everybody. Uh, I figured two years of doing this, I'll get used to it, but no. Sometimes I'm like, oh, man, I should have read up on this guy a little bit more. I should have, you know... Digged in a little deeper, but ultimately I had a good guy with this guy. Ultimately, this guy Johnny Manic, I got so comfortable with him that afterwards, as we were walking out, I told him, "Hey, call me up if you need anything." Just like that, just like that, Johnny, call me up if you need anything. It's like, what the hell is he gonna need me for? He's gonna call me up, being going, "Hey, Jorge, uh, I need help around the house." Then I'm be like, "Oh, uh, Johnny, I don't really. Well, you said to call you up when I need anything." So now I am obliged. I'm like, oh, well, that's what happens. That's what happens when you're too comfortable with people. Sometimes you put yourself in a situation where you gotta, you got to deliver on what you promised. But overall, I had a great chat with Johnny. <laughs> great chat about music. Some of you guys are listening for the first time. If you're listening for the first time, do me a favor. Uh, can you just follow the JMS Podcast on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? Stay updated with the latest guests who are coming up on this podcast. You can also subscribe to the JMS Podcast if you enjoy it so much on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and on... There's one more. There's one more. I think that's it, right? God, I feel like I, I'm in several more places. I'm a little hazy. I'm having, actually, to be quite frank, I'm having a little trouble with Stitcher Radio. So right now I'm working with their with their engineers about seeing what's up. Seems like the RSS feed over there's not doing what's supposed to do. But other than that, hey man, you got iTunes? JMS Podcast is right there for you. Hey man, you got you got Google? You like Google? Who doesn't? If you're from the South Bay, you have to like Google. That's like the home team. Well, then again, I guess Apple's also the home team. But by proximity, Google's a lot closer. It's in Mountain View, right? Not in Palo Alto. So I guess uh, the, the ones that's the closest is the home team, depending where you live. Either way, JMS Podcast is right there for you. All right? And it's free. Download these episodes for free. Get to know the local creative musicians, comedians, writers, filmmakers, uh, all kinds of people I had on the studio. Get to know them and check out their stuff. Support local stuff local stuff you know uh, 
because it's it's very diverse. All right, I can't say support local music because I'm trying to say support everything. That's what stuff means. All right, I'm going driving myself a little crazy here. Let's uh let's go on to the conversation. But before we go to the conversation, check out the JMS Podcast website at jmspodcast.com. All the available content is available for you right there at your fingertips. If you want to contact me for any reasons, either you want to give praises, maybe you got complaints. Maybe maybe I missed something in the conversation you wish you heard more of. I'd love to hear about it. All right, it helps me prepare myself for the next guy that comes around here or gal. Or anybody else who identifies as between. Whoever it may be. Uh, the more feedback I get from you guys, the better. You can email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. Or that. Alright, let's head on over to Johnny. Uh, I'm going to play oh, a song from his latest EP album. Which is available on iTunes. It is the uh, Johnny Manic Rock and Roll Depression album. God, I, I got to see. I gotta say the whole thing properly. Johnny Madigan and the Depressives new EP album Rock and Roll Depression. It's available on iTunes. This song called It's Fashionable. I'm digging it. It's nice, sweet, short, and pure rock. Pure punk rock. Not nothing that's diluted. Nothing is it's pure, all right? What you're about to hear is the purest form of punk rock here in the San Jose area. Uh, and if you're listening from the, all over the world, well, this is uh, a good, good slice of the best of the best punk rock music that that we have available thus far. So here is Johnny Manic and the Depressives. you guys uh, I'm you know I'm not into the whole music scene you know I'm a bit reclusive and you know, I, I play some music myself so and then the most uh, by the way these are the headphones cutting out not the actual recording okay. um, and I know I just started talking to people about the punk scene and so on and once in a while your your band name would show up uh, the, I hear it the Johnny Manic and the Depressives and I didn't really got to hear you guys in live until the Sofa Street Festival 
I'm like, oh man, I wonder if I get that guy on my podcast. <laughs> I wonder if he, if he <laughs> you know, because it's a small operation. You know what I'm saying? Like, some so punk rock. So I, if I, you're doing it right. <laughs> I was just on the phone talking to a record label and he's like I don't have distribution I'm like punk rock doesn't have distribution and the way it started before Green Day was a record label put out 500 copies of a 7 inch Yeah. then somebody else would put out 500 copies of a different 7 inch and they say hey I'll trade you 10 copies from my label out in Indiana for 10 copies of your release out in Atlanta and then they put it in their little mail order catalog and then someone else does it so and it just spreads like a germ 10 here 10 there 10 there 10 there and then you get and that's hit. how it kind of before internet that was punk rock distribution they'd buy ads and like little zines and stuff and the idea is it, that was before the green day explosion where punk rock became you know mainstream yeah you, again was, was that it a, was mainstream in the 70s too i mean the sex pistols i mean look at that the ramones that's they were all signed to major labels that was the other funny thing is like when Green Day signed a major label, and then all these other major labels started trying to find the next Green Day, like Offspring and all these other bands, you know, people were like calling them sellouts. And like, you do realize that the first punk bands that you listened to, that you grew up and idolized, were on major labels, right? Yeah. That, the Ramones were produced by Phil Spector. Yeah. <laughs> out loud. They were on Sire Records, a subsidiary of a major. The, the, the Sex Pistols were like on two or three major labels. I, I don't have my punk rock history down like I used to. It's been a while since I gave a shit. But, you know, they signed to a major label, got the money, got thrown off a major label, signed to another major label, same record. You know, the whole great rock and roll swindle, dude. They just, the joke's on you, you yeah. know? So, it's funny how people give bands shit that are on major labels it's like fuck them take their money <laughs> no I know you're are you currently on a label uh, I was looking at some of your film uh, filmography who am I talking to a filmmaker uh, your albums uh, Reach Around Records that's my label that's your own yeah, label I, I uh, when I started this band it it, it started out of a, a boredom project I was in a bunch of different bands at the time I was playing uh, how old were you when this band started? Yeah. I don't know, like 28, 27 or 28. I and turned 40 in December. But at the time, I was uh, like the hired gun in town. I, I played drums, bass, and guitar somewhat okay. And so yeah. when somebody would lose a band member just from being in the scene, I would, my band or whatever band I was in at the time, would be playing with those bands and they'd be like, hey, we, our drummer quit, you want to play drums? Our bass player quit, you want to play bass? Our guitar player quit. So at the time, when I started this project, I was in Clay Wheels, The Cliftons, The Forgotten, and The Odd Numbers. Were they, were they all punk bands? Yeah. Or, you know, punkish or punk. or You know, there's so many sub-genres, but at the end of the day, yeah, they're all punk bands, different kinds of punk. But, uh, I was single at the time, newly single, and I lived by myself, and I had a cassette four-track in a garage with all my gear down there, and if one of those bands would say, we don't have band practice tonight, I'd go crazy, because I didn't have anything to do. So I just started, I recorded one song just to see if I could do it, playing every instrument by myself on a cassette four-track, and basically what I did was I'd write the song, and then you know, in like 10 minutes or whatever, just write, you know, here's a verse, there's an intro, a chorus, a verse, a lead break, an outro, and, you know, they'd be like a minute and a half, two minutes long. 
So I'd run downstairs while I still had it stuck in my brain, and I'd hit play and record with one microphone, a vocal mic just pointed towards the drum kit, like at the end of the room. Yeah. And I'd just click off one, two, three, four, so I knew when to start with the other instruments from overdubbing. Uh huh. And I'd play the whole song, and I'd hum it in my head, <laughs> so I knew where the cymbals were, the toms, or the stop, and then start on the drums, right? Then I'd run back upstairs before I forgot it, and I'd track a guitar, and I had this little battery-powered Dean Markley guitar amp, those little teeny hip ones. Yeah, yeah. The see-through amplifiers. Uh-huh. And I'd use that so it wouldn't piss off my neighbors, and I'd wrap a microphone uh, with a, a T-shirt, and I'd, I'd like, you know, crisscross wrap it to the, the amplifier to get it like the big stadium sound, you know? And I'd turn that amp to 10 with a 9-volt battery in it, and I'd put on headphones, and I'd play guitar along to drums then I would plug my bass directly into the cassette 4 track and I would overdub the bass and then I would pull up a word doc and just put it on repeat and start writing lyrics and then once the lyrics were done I'd grab the mic and I would record the lyrics and I'd be like fuck dude I got a song and then I'd put the guitar solos because there's only 4 tracks 1 drums bass 2 guitar 3 vocals 4 uh-huh. where do you put the solo so the solo would be on the vocal track because okay. there was no fucking vocals going during the lead break, right? Right. So right. I, makes sense. There were times where I'd accidentally clip over the end of a vocal phrase to hit play and record because I was by myself every time. I didn't have someone to hit play and record and punch me in. So it'd come up and then I'd have to hit play, record, and then start a solo and then hit play, record real quick after to stop it so right. it didn't mow over the vocals that come back in after the lead break. So there were times I'd have to like go back and do vocals, and when I'd do that, I'd accidentally record over the beginning of the lead, and I was just fucking playing this tug-of-war back and forth, right? So I get one song done, and I put it on MySpace on, oh, New, New, Year's, MySpace on New Year's, Year's Day. Yeah. yeah, because that was your cloud. That was how you could share a song, right? Right, I remember, was, I remember those days. That was, you know, for me, I, that's all, the only way I knew how to like put a digital version of something up on online to where someone could just click on it and listen to it without having to download or Dropbox or any of that shit. So that was New Year's Day 2006. And uh, I put that one song up, and I, I was trying to think of some just silly name for the project, so I called it Johnny Manic and the Depressives, just as a joke. It wasn't supposed to be, like, a band. It wasn't uh-huh. supposed to be anything other than I made that profile page just so I could send links to my friends, like, check out this shit I did. Isn't this fucking weird? Like, I did it all by myself without on a cassette 4-track. Did you have any sound engineering experiences before? Yeah, I went to recording college, but I mean, it's a cassette four track. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I put a vocal mic, an SM58, at the end of the room for drums. That's it. Jesus. You know? And, and it and came it, out raw as fuck. It sounded <laughs> rad. Like, I, uh, and then, like, I put it up on, fa- on MySpace, and I got this huge, like, response. And everyone's like, dude, tell me about your band. I'm all, my band? There's no band. This is just me fucking around, dude. Like, yeah. it's a joke. It was just out of boredom just to see if I could do it. It was more of a test to myself. Like, wait a second, I'm a drummer. I'm a bass player. I'm a guitar player. You're a one-man band. I've never been a lead singer before, but I've done backup vocals, so I know I can get words out of my mouth into a microphone, and it sounds okay. I've never really written lyrics. Well, actually, I take that back. I was... Me and Ray Stevens and Clay Wills were sharing lead vocal duties, so that, that that's bad information. I shouldn't have said that. But I've never been, like, the sole lead singer. Hmm. How was I collaborating with like three different voices? What do you mean? 
Like, did you guys take turns on the verses? And no. He would write a song, and he would bring it to practice and say, I wrote a new song. Yeah. And then he'd write the lyrics. And that was just, all right, like, you don't, you don't fuck with it. That's his song. And then I would write a song, and then I'd bring it to practice, and he'd go, write some fucking lyrics, man. And I'd be like, ah. So I would write lyrics, and we wouldn't step on each other's songs. His song was his song. My song was my song. And then when we play sets, there was a cool dynamic because um, it would it was almost like two bands with the same drummer because mm. it were a three piece. He played bass and sang. But um, it was cool because it gives you a break, so you're not stuck on a mic stand the whole show. Like that's one of my biggest complaints about the Depressors is I like to be like more animalistic and run around and jump on shit and jump off shit. Yeah. And when you have to be back at the microphone all the time, you're stuck at this tripod mic. <laughs> It kind of limits, you know, what you can do. And you're also trying to play rhythm guitar, lead guitar, and sing. Look down at your guitar, but look at the crowd to make them feel, like, engaged. Right. Because if you just stare at your shoes, you're fucking boring, dude. Uh That sucks. You want to go see a band where the guy's staring at his guitar the whole time? Well, there's a literal genre dedicated to it. Shoegazing? Yeah. But... (laughs) What do the kids know, right? (laughs) Go ahead. Give it a label so it's okay. Right? Uh, Yeah. Let's give it a label so then we can get away with doing it and not get made fun of. But like, well, punk rock, punk in general, it's also about the presentation. You know, it's not. It's more. It's than, all about you, the presentation. It's all about the. You can make the yeah. The, the the punk bands, you know, the early years, they weren't the best musicians. They're a lot of times some of the worst musicians. Yeah. But it was what what the energy they gave you, right, on stage, you know, and and the weird antics you know like Gigi Allen fucking whipping out his wiener and chasing people around or Darby Crash shoving a fucking microphone into a peanut butter jar and just doing just weird shit it's, it's hard to do that when you're standing art. in one place right yeah, <laughs> yeah like how are you supposed to do performance art when you're stuck to a mic stand so that was a cool dynamic was after you play a song and you play your song and Ray would kick in his song it was really easy to like be able to run around again and also get breath you know uh, get your, your voice back hmm. And so the depressives, we throw a lot of surf songs in so I can catch my breath and also so I can run around. But after we put that, we, after I put that song on MySpace, I got a big response. And at the time, uh, I was in bands that were just kind of either I was losing interest or the band as a whole was losing interest. So the Clifton's kind of imploded. And, um, the Forgotten was working on a record and, um, it just, I don't know. It was almost like I, I didn't want to be in the band, and they didn't want me in the band. So it was it, was it that worked about? out. Um, I was drinking too much, and I'd get to practice and and drink, and um, they they had their idea of what they wanted, and I had my idea of what punk rock was, and we had two polar opposite ideas. Creative of what it was. differences. Yeah. Um, they they were more of a stoic kind of. Uh, thing and I was more of a live life and party bro and it didn't work for their deal I was not an original member I was a fill-in guy and mm. so I brought in a probably a, a more looser less um, less professional I guess and so th- when I quit they had told me yeah we were already like we would go to the bar after Bamprax and be like what are we going to do about Johnny and I was like well then I guess it works out uh, Clay Wills kind of fizzled out uh, the odd numbers 
fizzled out. And so I was like, well, fuck, I got this depressive thing. So I got a good response to it. So I ended up just writing an album just to see what would happen. I was like, I wonder if I, that was the next thing. Like the first thing was, can I do a song? And then phase two was like, can I do an album? Mm-hmm. So I ended up writing a 14 song album on my cassette four track. Like every day I'd get home from work and I'd, I'd write a song and I'd do that whole process. That process took, took about an hour. Was this Rebound Town? Yeah, from idea to playback of the completed song was about an hour. And then I would just hang out and drink beer and invite my friends over and we just put on loop and just drink beer and smoke weed and just be like, isn't this rad? Like, yeah. Now, when you decided to create this album, did you start bringing more musicians into the mix? Uh-uh. It's all you? Nah, dude, phase three. I want to see if I can go to a studio right. and do the album by myself. Yeah, yeah. And again, it was more for me. You know, I was, uh, I was just curious to see if I could do it. So I called up uh, my buddy Joe who used to sing in this band Fury 66 that was a pretty pretty big band they were on Fat Records for a while and uh, we'd gone back since I, I I used to ride for this clothing company Sessions Clothing when I was a skateboarder a sponsored skater and he worked there at the record label there and uh, we did some stuff together and so he opened this recording studio and at the time I was working at Zero Magazine selling advertising and he would buy ads for a studio there so naturally, the first place I, I wanted to record was with, with with him because, one, we're old friends. Two, I knew that he knew what I was trying to do and understood it. And three, I felt it was only fair he was supporting our business. Why not support his business, right? You, you go to your advertisers first when you do business, right? Right. So I went out there. I loaded up a drum kit, a bass rig, guitar rig, guitars, bass, everything into my pickup truck and drove over the hill. And I brought that little amp as well <laughs> that little Dean Markley clear amp because I was like that's our sound and I pull that thing out and I start wrapping a microphone with the t-shirt around he's all no no, no <laughs> what no, are no, you no. doing yeah he <laughs> well, that. you mentioned that you went to a auto recording school right yeah what school was this uh, it was called California Recording Institute oh, and then Jesus with a name like that wh- wh- and then where it, was it located at in San Francisco okay and that was in 98-99 so even before you took it seriously you want to be around music in the production of music. Well, I've been I've been playing music. Uh, I started playing violin in third grade, and then around that time, my brother started a a fun four track punk band called Peanut Butter Wolf, uh-huh. and I was the lead singer, and I was like eight or nine. So that and and did, we we did. did you put interview. in the violin into it? No, no. no. <laughs> it was just really bad experimental, like like a bunch of high school kids with an eight year old singer. Yeah. Um, Do you come from a musical family? Is it, yeah. Were your parents musicians? Uh, my mom was a singer. My dad uh, was a singer too. He he sang on uh, the this I forgot some anthem, the Sutton of the Green Beret, the March of the Green Beret, or I don't remember what it was, but it's some real famous like army song, and he's on that the seven inch. They're like classical singers. Yeah, and then my grandfather was a stand up bass player in the Boston Pops for like thirty years. He gave me my first bass amp. Once he found out I was playing bass, he's like, I got an amp, I'll ship it to you. And like this big wooden crate, like in Christmas Story shows up, you know, where we got a, a cat's paw ripping this wooden box apart, like fragile. Yeah. And his his amp from the 70s was in there. So you grew up around jazz usually? No, I grew up around punk rock. Okay. I started listening to punk rock around, um, I don't know, third grade, because my brother was into punk rock and he'd make me mixtapes and stuff. And then it's funny now he's famous. He's a famous hip hop 
producer and record label owner. He owns uh, Stone's Throw Records. Right. His DJ name, producer name is Peanut Butter Wolf. He has like, this huge vinyl collection that he's known for. Right? That's ridiculous. It weighs a ton. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I played violin, clarinet, trumpet, all through orchestras from third grade to twelfth grade, and then started a punk band sophomore year or junior year called Dysfunctional Squirrel with my friends from school band. And so I've always been in bands. I've always wanted to be in music. I, 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 I remember I got in a band my junior year of high school and I stopped doing my homework because I was so convinced that I was going to be music. It was, yeah. was going to pay my bills. You were ready to drop out? Yeah, I was just like, I, I'm in this band. We're going to get signed. It'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I've always been into it. And then uh, I started going to college and uh, I wasn't doing my homework because I was cutting school to go skate. Is this the recording college? No, this is before that. And then my, my mom called my brother and was like, I don't know what's going on. You know, we're paying all this money for him to go to college and he's he's not get he's not getting grades, he's cutting classes, he's and my brother's like Well he's smart and he's 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 driven, but he's driven about skateboarding, he's driven about music. I mean he's accomplishing all these things on his own with no resources, no financial backing. Why don't you send him to a college that focuses on something like that? And so my brother talked to one of his producer friends. He's like, oh, I went to this college up in San Francisco called California Recording Institute. Why don't you uh, have your mom and him go to the open house that's next week? So my mom and my stepdad and I drove up to San Francisco on a Saturday afternoon, went to this open house, and I was all, yeah, this is it. I want this. And so I did really well in that school. My mom was like, I knew that you were smart and driven. It's just you could care less about you know, traditional academics. But when it's something you're passionate about, you're like obsessive about it. So she found a college that would teach me about what I wanted to learn about. So I was obsessive about it. And you were supposed to do like certain labs. Like you have a five hour lab on this day. Five hour, I was there every fucking day, like doing extra credit labs just because I just wanted to be around all these knobs and tape machines. And they just gotten Pro Tools at that time. And I was all, fuck that. Like, Pro sounds tool. like shit. I wanted to work on these fucking big ass consoles with two half inch or two two inch tape machines and going analog dude it was all about that and i was like you guys can have your digital shit because i'm into punk rock and we want it to sound raw and old school so just teach me how to run this shit because i'm gonna open a studio myself and just record punk bands for twenty dollars an hour ten dollars an hour whatever i I had in my head i made this like math equation it's like as long as i can make like 1500 bucks a month i could pay rent i could you know do what I want to do pay Get my bills yeah, yeah I made a budget and I was like I can do that and then uh, I graduated recording college and then music and skateboarding started taking off and I was like well I can always fall back on that so, were you bring in local punk rock uh, bands into the studio when yeah. you were going to school yeah because they get, uh, you have to have guinea pigs right so it'd be like okay this assignment is bring a band in and do one song with them so I was hitting up all of my friends bands like hey you want to you want to record in a fucking like Hollywood badass studio with like all the gear and they're like yeah I'm like alright well, here's the catch it's being recorded by students and you have to be really patient when we when we when we can't figure something out because the teacher would just sit there and let you struggle so you could figure it out and then if it got to the point where like the band was like in it you know pissed off the teacher would step in and like alright you forgot to flip that switch that's why it's not turning on because there's so many things right? yeah so many knobs and yeah it wasn't switches. a fucking mouse and a keyboard it was right. like a a console with like you know 50 60 fucking strips you know and 
I remember walking into that class for the first time just going, oh my God, what did I get myself into? And I walk over to the teacher and I'm like, dude, I'm a little like nervous here. Like I'm not a tech nerd at all. You it's know? intimidating. I'm used to my cassette four track. And he's like, yeah. all right, tell me about your cassette four track. It's all, well, it's got four tracks, it's got high, mid, low, it's got an input volume, it's got a playback volume and it's got a fader. And he's like, okay, what does that fader do? And he's like, basically tell me what I already know. So then I go, oh, all right. So this is just like that is what you're saying. And he's like, here's the thing. I want you to do one thing. I want you to learn what everything on track one does. Just learn that. And it was like Mr. Miyagi shit. I was like, I didn't understand at the time. And I was frustrated. And I was like, dude, what am I going to do with one track? Like, there's like, you know, 32 tracks here. Like, what am I going to do with this one track? Just learn that track. Learn it in and out. Learn what everything does. And then we'll talk again tomorrow. And I'm like, all right. So I did. I stayed after class and I fucking played with everything and made sure I knew what every single thing did. The next day he's like, all right, show me, let's let's look at track one, what's that? I'm like, oh, that's the bus, what's that? That's the, the game, what's that? That's the, the auxiliary you sent to the, the, the effect. And he's like, all right, cool, let's go to track two now. I'm all right, and he's all, what's that? Well, well that's the same, he's all, get it? Mm. All you gotta do is learn track one, because every other track is the same fucking thing. And I'm like, oh my God, mind blown. All right, so he's all, you don't get discouraged by looking at this with like a wide angle lens of this whole board. Just look at track one, learn everything on track one, and track two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all those are the same. And I'm like, fuck, I figured it out. This thing was so confusing. Like, Get the key. I was so intimidated by it, right? <laughs> and so when I would like help other people, I'm like, just learn track one. All right, what's that do with them? They'll look. I just would watch their heads explode, and they're like, "Oh shit!" Like it's not, you know, people that don't know anything about recording go into the studio and they just see all this shit and it fucking blow, like, trips them out. Like, oh my god, how do you do all this? And it's like, well, one and thirty-two and twenty—they're all the same. Just learn one, and then everything is, you know, one bite, and then just eat the rest of the sandwich. And there's different styles of recording, right? I mean, there's people who will uh, will record most of the band together. And others prefer to record the instruments separately. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have a particular style? I have a choice, and I have what actually happens. And what my choice is actually happening now. So it's kind of weird. So back to Rebound Town. I did that one track at a time, right? Because I had to, because I was the only guy. And then I started getting... Uh, I got hit up by the producers of Jackass and, and Dick House and stuff, and they they were using my music and then they had me take the uh, vocal tracks off of it so they could use more of it on their TV shows like background and then one day I get this call and they're like hey we, we just got out of a meeting with uh, like all these boss guys or whatever and they want to hire you to write catalog music for us that we don't but we want you to write it and we'll pay you like a one time fee plus you get your royalties every time the show airs and I was like fuck yeah so again, I'm back in the studio by myself again. So before, after Rebound Town, then I would, like you were saying, all of us in the room, we're playing, we're tracking, we're doing it all live, and then overdub little sweet spots, like a lead here, a second guitar there, overdub all your vocals, but it would be drums, bass, and guitar in the, in the room, getting the bass you know, of the painting before you start adding all the little add-ons of the painting, right? That's what I prefer to do, because it's the real energy, it's the real vibe. And then... Uh, I started doing it one at a time again, and I had to do it to a click track because they had to have it sync up to the video of the TV shows. And so when they're editing by seconds, they want to make sure the drum beat is on 
on a timer whereas before I would just hit play and record and go like it's punk rock if it speeds up a little or slows down that's the the emotion of the song made me speed up or the emotion of the song made me slow down so it's really feeding the emotions and then I felt it was just fucking robotic when I hear clip track right yeah and I'm like fuck dude this is so stiff but that's what they wanted and so I did five songs for them five turned into another 25 then into another 25 next thing you know Fast forward, you know, four or five years later, they got like 150 of these fucking songs. And then uh, as I was working on other albums, there would be like a, a band member leave or whatever. And I'd be like, whatever, I'll just play their part. So then I had to go back to the click track because we didn't have a drummer for one record. And I'm like, well, I'm the drummer. And I wrote all these songs on a cassette four track. That's how I would pre-produce all these songs. I'd write them into a cassette four track with nobody around. And then band practice would come and be like, here's another song. And we'd learn it and they put their own little spin on it. <clears throat> but I would, you know, write the songs. You had the framework. Yeah, I would write it all on a cassette four track. And then uh, money started rolling in from doing these TV shows. And so I started investing in recording equipment. Because I, I built a recording studio at my house like 10 years ago. <laughs> in our back garage, framed out two ISO booths, a live room and a mixing room. And then I had like a tape machine in there and I had a cassette four track. And I understood it, so I was like, you know, I'd hit play and record in one room and then run out to the other room. You hear my keys on my, my hip jingling, getting closer to the snare mic, you know? Right. And I'd sit down, click off and play, and, and do everything by myself. And then uh, when we were working on the Primitive Sounds record, um, I was I wrote it all and showed it to the guys, and then every band practice, they'd show up late and leave early, and it seemed like I'd have to reteach them the song every practice. I'm like, dude, you guys gotta like listen to this at home. Like, it's this band practice, you know, this, or this band rehearsal. You're practicing at band practice. Like, practice at home, rehearse with the band. So I was just getting frustrated because I was like, I know these songs inside and out, and my ego is like, well, I'm a better, I, I'm better at playing these parts on drums than that guy, or I'm better at playing these parts on bass. Doesn't mean I'm a better drummer or bass player, but it sounds right to me because I hear the song in my head like it's an iPod in my head. I'm like, oh, there's supposed to be a fill right there. There's supposed to be a bass fill there. It's supposed to go like this because I've heard it recorded on a cassette four track. So right before we were going to record, I, I had a guy come in to record us, and then the guys didn't know their parts. And so the, the mixing guy's like, fucking call me back when you guys are ready. No. And that's time and money right there. Too. Yeah, yeah. So then weeks go by, and I call a different guy to come in and record us. Same thing. Call me when you guys are ready. So then the third one was scheduled another guy. Like, these people didn't want to come back. They're like, you guys are fucking a waste of my time. Third guy comes back, or he's scheduled to come back, and I call the drummer, and I'm like, hey, dude, we're recording tonight. You better make sure you got your shit. And he's like, yeah, I want to talk to you about that. And he just unloaded, like, dude, I don't want to be in your band anymore. Like, you know, you're always harping on me, this, that, and that. So there's a two-way street, right? I'm harping on them, so I have a part in it. I was a dick to them because I felt like my time was being wasted. Like, hey, dude, in all honesty, just give me the sticks and give me the bass, and I'll just do this by myself. I thought I was being cool, like, including you guys in this, but I'd be happier just doing it all by myself because I hear the songs in my head the way I want to hear them with my playing in my head, you know? But at the same time, that's pretty douchey, you know? You can't have a band and then record all the parts and then, you know, 
would you want to be in that band? I wouldn't want to be in that band. I'd be like, go fuck yourself. Unless we're getting paid. Like, yeah. you know, if, if it's paying bills, I'd be like, dude, whatever. Fuck, you want me to put on a wig? I'll put on a wig. I'm getting paid. I don't give a fuck. But when you're not getting paid, you know, fuck, fuck you, Johnny. I'm going to fucking play my part the way I want, you know? Well, I understand the sentiment. I mean, uh, like for me, I have a band. Jorge and the Wandering Poets. Mm-hmm. And I, it's similar, you know, I have the songs, I write them out, and I have the framework as far as, you know, chords or beats or rhythm. And going into rehearsals, I have a preconceived, uh, you know, you idea. Hear it in your head. Yeah, like what I, I'm expecting. But the thing I've done is I made sure that my bandmates are better musicians from me and are diverse. So I kind of give them some leeway of like, what do you think? Because uh, I was nervous about that myself. It's like, do I really want to just put my my vision completely on there, or should? They're here for a reason, and I know they're better at me at the bass. I know they're better at me at the drums. For you, maybe it's a little different because you you knew you could do the bass and the drums. But there's always that you know hesitation of like, is it, is it good of what they're offering? Mm-hmm. And for me, so far, I feel like ninety percent of it is, is is a yes. Yeah. Well, there's all there's always a better drummer, and there's always a better guitar player, and there's always a better bass player. But will they listen to your ideas, or they'd be like, "Fuck you, dude! I don't need this band. Like, mm. I, I I'm better than you, Johnny, or I I got a better gig than you. I'm gonna make like actual money to pay my bills off of another gig. Fuck you." Um, so I ended up this current lineup. It's my friends, and it's it's fun. It's it's not guys off Craigslist, you know. It's, it's that's another thing is so when you're different. dealing with musicians who are who are hired guns. It's it's kind of a little harder to wrangle. Yeah, and it's frustrating because I was always the hired gun that didn't get paid, and I didn't care about getting paid. I just had fun, right? But these guys never had to show me their songs. I came with my A game to their first practice and knew their songs. I practiced at home. And so I expect that same respect to me. So that's why it was so frustrating. I was like, I wish I could just fucking clone myself, my work ethic and and my respect for the songs because I didn't feel I was getting that right. So the third guy came over that night and he's all, where's the band? I'm all, they all quit today. He's like, I I drove down from San Francisco. And I was like, so get in the fucking mixing room. And he's all, what? And I was all, start setting up mics on the drums. We're going to do it. I know these songs. I've already recorded them on a cassette four track. So I started uh, laying down drum and and uh, drums and guitar parts, and then I found a bass player, and he ended up doing all the bass parts. But there's like, it's it's funny. It's like it seems like the the records usually happen when things fall apart. So the first record is just me. The second record is the full band, a different lineup. Then the. Th- but one of the guitar players really didn't show up much for his his days to do overdub so I ended up like well I'm paying for this time and so I'm just going to do it so I ended up playing rhythm guitar on a lot of the songs the third record is the full band a different lineup same bass player is that Primitive Sounds? no the first record is Rebound Town second record is 1.21 gigawatts that was the first depressive record where it's a bass it was me and a guitar player or uh, me and a drummer in the studio tracking then we overdub bass layer because the bass player had to work that day or something. Then the third, so, but it's still a whole band. Then the third record is I'm Not a Bum, I'm a Jerk. That is a full band. Then the fourth record is Primitive Sounds, and that's just me on drums and guitar. Then a bass player came along later to join the band, and so I had him lay his bass parts on there to make him feel more part of the project. And so it's just me and him on side A. Side B, we had found a drummer by then, and we we did a live recording on the radio and made that side B. 
So the LP is side A is a studio record with me playing drums and guitar and a bass player. Side B is the full band three piece live and uh, on the on the radio. Which radio station? Um, Foothill College eighty nine seven. Oh, okay. I think that's it. Yeah. Um, and back to your point about labels. That morning we had talked to a record label that was like, "Yeah, we want to put out your record. We have, we have, you know, distribution and stuff, but we haven't put out a record yet. But they they're part of um, this other uh, online store. They had an online store, and they called us to buy their buy our catalog so they could put it in their online store. And they're like, we were thinking of putting out a record. We wanted to start a record label, and I was like. Well, we're working on a record, and after a half hour, we basically talked them into putting out our record, starting a label, kind of. The label idea was already there, but I think I pushed them over the edge to actually do it. So I was like, well, I have a side A, and I was all, and we're going into a, 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 a radio show tonight. We'll just record side B on the radio. Wouldn't that be cool? Side A in the studio, side B, you know? And they're like, fuck yeah, let's do it. So we did that and sent it off. Then the last record that we did last full length the cold pizza warm beer uh i had had a fallout with that bass player and my father was in hospice care during that time and so i was drinking really really heavy and my fucking shit was just all weird and uh i was doing a bunch of stuff for the mtv shows and so like our, our engineer neil who became the engineer after Primitive Sounds. He did Primitive Sounds and Cold Pizza. He's my best friend. Uh, he was hanging out in there and we'd be like doing stuff for MTV and I'd be like, fuck that, I'm taking that one. I'm not selling that one, dude. That one's going to be on the new album. So there's a bunch of songs on the Cold Pizza record that were written for TV shows that I yanked back, one of which is Cold Pizza Warm Beer. That song was supposed to be an MTV song. That's a catchy song. <laughs> well, fuck, dude. I wasn't about to sell it for a few hundred bucks. <laughs> So, uh, I was really digging the music video as well. Yeah. Like, yeah, that was a fun one to film. Although, although it must have been a little, a little uncomfortable being on the floor naked. Not at all. Dude. <laughs> that, that's what I'm most comfortable. <laughs> Do you but, feel like your, your songwriting has changed since your first record? Every record it changes because my life changes and yeah. my priorities change and what I find interesting changes. And, uh, when I f- was writing Rebound Town, I was listening to a lot of David Bowie, and I remember him saying, like, I want every record to be a different record. Why well, put out the same record over and over and over, you know? So I was like, yeah, I'm going to do something kind of like Bowie. Like, every record's going to be a little bit different. So Rebound Town is just like uh, rock. It was my first time writing, like, rock and roll and pop punk kind of. And I didn't want to do any surf on that record because Clay Wheels did surf, and I felt that that would be a slap in the face to Ray to to do a side project without him and then do surf because he's the one that got me into surf I didn't play surf until I met Ray him and Mike Fox taught me how to play surf guitar so I was like no surf's gonna be on this record and then after that record came out Clay Wheels kind of spread apart even further and I was just like you know what dude why shouldn't I do surf like people were like how come you don't do surf like we miss the surf stuff and I'm like yeah I'm gonna do fucking surf this one so 1.21 gigawatts I wanted to have clean guitars without distortion try to do more like a 50s boogie woogie rock and roll and some 60s garage like the kinks and zombies and stuff so i was like really into the whole garagey thing then and surf so i did that and then what came after that 
the I'm not a bum, I'm a jerk. I was listening to a lot of Ramones again. I was going back to like that kind of stuff. And, that had a real uh, Ramones kind of vibe. Yeah. yeah. Even the title itself. Yeah. Well, that that's that's from the movie The Jerk. Yeah. The Steve Martin movie. Uh-huh. The first line of the movie, he's sitting there homeless and he goes, I am not a bum, I'm a jerk. And so that album cover of The Jerk album is this is the 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 movie cover of The Jerk the movie. Mm-hmm. He's like wearing the robe and he's got like a chair and a lamp in his hand so I have a skateboard and a guitar instead so it's an homage to Steve Martin <laughs> and then the, there's a song called Navin R. Johnson on that record where I went online and I put up the jerk quotes and it's pages of quotes and so I copy and paste it into a word doc um, chronologically the, the, the story of the movie uh-huh. but the entire song is movie quotes if you go back and listen to it you'll hear and like holy shit I didn't write any lyrics I arranged movie quotes into a song and it worked has anybody ever uh, found out like you know got it like really saw what you were doing and like hey I noticed that these were yeah a lot because yeah. my friends know that I'm a fanatic about the jerk they know I'm a fat fanatic about Back to the Future if it wasn't for Back to the Future I wouldn't skate I wouldn't listen to Chuck Berry I wouldn't be into rock and roll mm-hmm. that was like boom it's on I was 85 I was like eight, 8 years old that was around the time I started listening to punk rock that planted the seed definitely oh that's fascinating uh, you, you uh, I'm Marty McFly dude your your, uh, your avenue to punk rock was Chuck Berry mm-hmm. how fitting well that's that's what started rock and roll and, and those punk bands that started the first ones who did they go off of right <laughs> it didn't exist yet right so they went to Chuck Berry, Little Richard, you know, the MC5, the Stooges, you know, that proto-punk, what, what was before. And so a lot of people say, you sound like, you know, Johnny Thunders. I'm like, no, I sound like Link Ray. I went back further than those guys to who they were listening to. Link Ray. Yeah. So I, I may, what comes out of me may sound like these bands from the 70s and 80s, but I'm influenced by their influences. Right. And right. so when people say like, "Oh, you sound like so and so," I'd be like, "No, I don't. I sound like the Stooges. You know, I don't sound like fucking Electric Frankenstein or Turbo Negro. I rip off the same guys they rip off. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you went to the source. Don't insult me like that. <laughs> I have a deeper, deeper bag than that. Yeah, yeah. How was the uh, how was the uh, punk landscape around here when you were when you were starting out? Mm, it was a uh, it was interesting because. When my bands started playing gigs, like Peanut Butter Wolf was more of like a recording project, and we would send tapes to uh, KSJS every week for this local show. And then we started writing songs about the DJ, so then we knew he'd play them. And at the same time, my brother and one of the other members were DJs at KSJS, so we had to keep all our identities secret, so we had these fictitious identities. Like, I was this eight-year-old crackhead that lived in Oakland. That was my, like, character's identity. Uh-huh. And then the guy asked us to come on to his radio show for an interview. And so we went, but my brother and his buddy didn't come because then the, the secret would be out. Right. So this whole time, my brother's, you know, at the station, and he's overhearing these people talking about Peanut Butter Wolf, and he couldn't say anything because he didn't want people to say, like, the only reason you guys are getting airplane on there is because you guys work there. So him and his buddy Steve, who uh, later became Baron Zen, that's like his um, moniker, had to just keep their mouth shut. So we even sent in fake 
band members to the radio interview <laughs> that I went to. I was in like fourth grade. I'm, I'm having a radio interview, dude. And I, I wanted them to paint my face like Ultimate Warrior. Uh huh. Because that was my favorite wrestler. Right. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'll do like face paint like Ultimate Warrior. And the outcome was nothing like Ultimate Warrior, but that was the goal. And they never found anything suspicious about it? No, they thought it was funny. Uh, we had these fake stories. They interviewed us. And I was like, yeah, I live in this, this, this like abandoned church in Oakland and I panhandle and I don't go to school and I'm just this kid with spiky hair face painted up and a white t-shirt with peanut butter smeared all over it (laughs) but uh in high school we started playing out and that was that was like after the Green Day explosion so and and then that ska explosion this is like 94, 95. Yeah, Sublime and all those were coming out yeah and fucking No Doubt and Save Ferris and all that shit so Everybody wanted to be in a ska punk band. I unfortunately played in one. Um, Sorry to hear that. Yeah, the dark ages. <laughs> but there was—it was such a mixed-up scene. There was like the drinking junkie punks that were doing like basement shows, and so like we could go to those when we were like sixteen. There was no age restrictions, you know. And we'd go there, and there'd be a keg, and some of us would drink. So I didn't—I didn't really find interest in drinking at that age. I just wanted to smoke pot take acid um and then there was the teen center shows so there's like cupertino library there's the los gas teen center there's like little teen centers that would have shows and those were really cool and they would get touring bands that whole like early punk rock distribution style right it was before these guys had booking agents it was word of mouth yep or they'd like trade records with people Right, and then or like a local label here would trade records with someone from Japan, and then the band from Japan would come down, and we'd heard of them because we saw that record in his little you know merch box. So local labels would show up to a punk show and set up a merch booth, and you just thumb through records, and so they're all trading. So that was their way of getting rid of ten here, ten here, ten here, ten here, all over the world, and vice versa. They would trade back and forth. So when you would go on the road, you had this like ghetto fight club style distribution. And that's how those shows were. You know, you'd see these bands before they were radio bands playing the Cupertino Library. And it was mind-blowing. You're like, holy shit, dude. Like, can you believe The Offspring played this teen center? You know, before they, they hit it big on the radio, you know? Yeah. A lot of distribution back then was through skateboard videos. Skateboard videos were a big deal. You'd get one video, you'd watch it four times a day, every day, and your friends would trade videos. And I'm going to take the video home tonight. We all chip in and go skate five bucks each to get a video. And they'd be like, all right, I get it from this day to this day. You get it. So then we would start making mixtapes off the soundtracks. So like you'd be listening to a cassette tape and you're from the skateboards. Right. Well, we're like trying, and then you'd watch the credits and find the the uh, the records, and then you'd call Streetlight and be like, "Do you have this? No. Can you order it? No." <laughs> <laughs> and then like we'd go to a show and find it, and then make tapes for all your friends. So shows were totally different because there wasn't an internet. There was a, people would do mailing lists. So, like, if your band was playing, you'd have this clipboard with, like, learn about our next show, sign our mailing list, and you'd put your actual address and your name. And so, like, bands that were really trying to get it going would get their mailing list, and they'd make a postcard with all their shows for the next month or two. Mm-hmm. Like, real small. Like, come see such and such play here at the Cactus Club, then here at the Cupertino Library, then here at the Santa Cruz Teen Center, then here at Gilman Street, then here at whatever, you know, Berkeley Square, whatever it was. And then you'd lick a stamp and you'd write the name on there and you'd send, go to the post office and send out a shitload of these things. And that's how you, instead of an email blast, it was so weird. 
like how how hard bands worked. Well, now you just make you know you'd make a MySpace page. And it's all like, digital now and online. Done. Yeah, yeah, we would. When the Clifton's we would put on ski masks in all black and then we would run around San Jose with uh, wheat paste do you know what wheat paste is? <laughs> Jesus no what is that? we would cook down like water and I don't remember if it was flour or something but you cook it down into this gunky it looked like Elmer's glue uh-huh. and you get these little weenie paint rollers and we would get a uh, we would pour that goop into uh, a Gatorade bottle so it had a big mouth so you can hang your weenie roller and you put on a backpack and shove it in the little bungee side of the backpack so you know you could run across the street to a freeway on ramp sign and wipe it with wheat paste you'd roll it and then you'd pull a 11 by 17 poster that you made at Kinko's because your buddy works there and you'd be like I'll let you get into the show just make us flyers we always had Kinko's hookups so we never had to pay for the, the flyers nice and then you'd wheat paste it and slap that on there and it, it hardens like a cement and there's no way you're getting that shit off the, the fucking uh so we were like doing our DIY flyering like illegally, yeah. like it got to the point where you start getting th- fine threats from like the city of Campbell and shit. Jesus. For, and so every major stoplight, we'd pull over our car and be like, "All right, you're getting this one. You go to that light post. I go to li- this it's a light full post." Full operation. Yeah, dude. We get out. <laughs> we have our beanie rolled up. We pull it over as a ski mask and go slap the the poster. And then for months. That shit would still be there, so it was like free band. It would be like free uh, billboards for your band, right? For months, people were like, "Why have I heard of you? Oh, I've heard of you guys." Yeah, of course you've fucking heard of us. There's a flyer right on the 87 on ramp, right at the 87 off ramp. There's a flyer, you know, in front of streetlight. There's a flyer in front of the gaslighter. There's, and the city couldn't peel them off, <laughs> <laughs> so they'd start scratching them with like something to like scrape them up, and you'd see it almost looked like a raccoon was scraping it at the flyer. But it never came down. Did it pay off? Were there a lot of people? Fuck like, yeah! Flocking it totally to your paid shows? off because even during like the MySpace era, we were still wheat pasting flyers. Because how many people get on that on ramp on Seventh Street near uh, you know the, the college? Mm-hmm. Millions of people, right? On the two eighty. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're leaving a club, how do you get on the freeway? So we strategically picked out certain. Uh, you know, you get off eighty seven in, in Santa Clara Street fucking we plaster that shit or like the the signs there'd be like a sign and then another sign for uh, other traffic that's a big silver square just waiting for some logo to be slapped on it you know so we'd fucking hit that anytime somebody would go downtown to go see shows they would be stuck at a stoplight looking at our logo and our band name so it helped build us up and then we started making cdrs this is like early cdr era and one of the guys worked at a screen print shop, so we got those shitty blue CDRs on the bottom. Of the, like you know, you can tell someone's half-assed when they when you flip it over, and you're like, oh, it's blue. They made it yourself. Like, yeah, you're not the real deal. They just burned it. Yeah, into so, a CD. So we just screen printed a Clifton's Tony Clifton head logo. Didn't even put our band name on, just the logo, which just made an icon like the Misfit Skull. That was like our version of our Misfit Skull. And so we put three songs on it, and every show we we played. We'd be like, all right, go to the van, grab the box of those things. And so it, it was the little uh, paper with, uh, not paper, but like cardboard, black cardboard. We bought them in bulk that had the little window in it. No plastic, just a hole cut out, like almost like a record sleeve. And the Clifton head fit perfectly in there. So after we played, we walk up to every single person we could find at the bar or the show or whatever and hand them a sampler. Right. Like, here you go. Here's three songs. You like it? Buy the album. 
and we were just really heavy on the self-promotion. Because we're hustlers, work. man. Jesus. And then we would call the local radio shows and be like, can you guys play the Cliftons? Like, we'd make, like, a, a weird voice. <laughs> and we'd request ourselves. Uh, there must be a demand Dude, in this town for this. Serious. <laughs> like, these guys are blowing up. So, yeah. like, every, anytime we had a, a, a pact in the band, because we all listened to college radio at the time. Again, this is, like, the early days of, like, internet. Nobody really used the internet for anything other than checking their email and going on the internet to like surf web pages and, and maybe MySpace or Friendster or whatever. People weren't really using it. And it wasn't on your phone yet. We had flip phones. So most things were college radio still. That's how you learned about new music. You'd listen to college radio. Now nobody gives a fuck about college radio. Um, but whenever we had a pact, wherever you are, if you're in Berkeley, San Francisco, San Jose, whatever, because we made sure every one of those fucking stations had our stuff and we did interviews on every one of those stations and we had... We had a little bit of a connection every station just from making friends, right? So wherever you were, whatever time of day it was, if you were flipping through the channels and you heard Case Jess playing punk, you called and made a weird voice that said, hey, can you guys play the Cliftons? And they'd be like, yeah, cool. And they'd be like, all right, we, up next we got the Cliftons by request. And we play it. So we were blowing ourselves up on the radio like payola style without paying you know, a kilo of coke to the station manager to play her shit. Right. It totally worked, dude. Like we were right on the cusp of the end of the the DIY and then beginning of the DIY internet and we just ran that shit and so when the depressive started I already had a name for myself from all the the work and notoriety that band got so when that band disbanded I kept all the contacts I made from that band because me and the singer were the hustlers the other two guys just kind of like oh we write songs so you guys that's your deal you guys go do that so we're like, all right, but uh -huh. when this band breaks up and we start something new, you guys are going to not know anybody. Nobody knows who you guys are because you didn't make all these friends. So me and the singer, Will, would go to all these events and schmooze and like make sure everybody knew who the fuck we were and made friends with all the different radio stations, made friends with all the, the local record store owners, made friends with all the promoters and all the bookers and you know all the guys that put on shows. And then when, his, when he started a new band, his band was set. When I started the Depresses, we were set. Hey, what's up, man? It's Johnny from the Clifton's. How's it going? All oh, right, on, man. How you been? I haven't seen you guys around. Yeah, we broke up. Hey, I got this new thing. Uh, can we play? You know, your one of your events or one of your parties or one, whatever. Hey, uh, it's Johnny from the Clifton's. I got a new record out. Uh, we're called the Depressives. Can I mail you a copy to be considered for your radio show? Can you have us in for an interview? Like, yeah, fuck yeah, Johnny. Like, right on. It was all friends, right? And then that MTV thing all started because my brother put out a Clifton 7-inch and he gave one of the the guys uh, that does the music licensing, hey, check out this 7-inch of this crazy band my brother's in called the Clifton's. And they started using it in that TV show Viva La Bam. Mm, yeah, I remember the that. The Bam Margera shit and like yeah. uh, anything that had to do with like the Dick House thing. They started using it. And so... They called us and like, hey, do you have more of it? And we're like, we have like 50 songs recorded. And he's all, check it out. If you wipe the, the vocal tracks off, we'll play a bunch of that shit. And the, again, this pre-internet, people streaming TV shows and downloading illegally. So the royalty checks were fucking huge because the viewership was fucking huge. And the advertising rates were fucking huge. Now they're so low. Back then, I'd have one page of placements on my royalty statement. And it'd be tens of thousands of dollars. It was fucking retarded. And then we'd split it four ways. So it ended up being like, all right, whatever. So when I started the Rebound Town thing, I'm like, light bulb. Like, I'm going to call those dudes, and I'm going to play everything, and I'm not going to split shit with nobody. Yeah. Like, I'm the bass player, drummer, and guitar player. I'll fucking spit out tons of shit. By the time it actually stuck and grew legs and I was doing a bunch of work for them, 
internet streaming, all that shit. So like, I'll have a royalty payment that's like 18 pages, and it's still not as big as the one page ones from 2004, 2005, 2006. Jesus. Just because the industry's changed that much. Yeah. You know, like I'll get a statement from like Spotify or whatever, and it'll be like Spotify, uh, all the streaming, it'll be like a thousand streams of this song, 10 cents. 10 cents for like all of that. You yeah. get like one tenth of a penny for every hundred streams. Some fucking ridiculous like algorithm. Not too long ago, you sell 10,000 CDs. That's like, goes a long way. Hell yeah, it does. Now, 10,000 songs, like plays and nothing. Mm, nothing. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I'm lucky to break $100 in a year on all my streaming. But, uh, yeah, all that hustling and DIY ethic laid the path. So it was a lot of hard work and a lot of like, this isn't fair, you know. We're doing all this work, me and the singer, because the singer was like, "I'm just the singer. I, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do all the promoting." And the drummer was like, "Well, I write the fucking songs, so you guys, I'm the songwriter. I'm not doing shit. You guys fucking go put up flyers. You go do this like, almost like, you know, I'm just gonna sit back and like I'm the band, you know, like all right, whatever." And the and the guitar player was was just not very organized and just kind of lazy and just want to hang out and drink beer and we're like all right whatever that we all found we all had our place in the band i was like the producer of the band because i was just fresh out of recording college so it's like here's how we're going to record this here's how here's what we're going to do here's how we're going to use this amps here's the tones we're going to get here's the volumes like and i added a, a lot of bass melodies and really busy bass lines to the songs to, so instead of a three chord punk song it had all these melodies hidden under the three chords with kind of like I hate to compare it but like rancid like it's three chords but the bass lines are really melodic and a lot going on and so me and Will were just like alright we're going to do all the work fuck it but we get to keep the work when we move on and so without the Clifton's without my brother putting out that record and introducing me to that crew I wouldn't have had what I have now with all the music that I'm doing for TV shows like you know 150 some odd songs two minutes long everything I mean what's that like 15 albums worth of music I could just I could just drop lyrics on it today and put out 150 song depressive album you know yeah that'd be fucking weird Jesus now it goes to tell you know, it goes to show you that you know it could be, it could be the best, best musician in the world but if you don't got that work ethic it don't mean shit it don't mean shit dude yeah a lot of the bands that did get somewhere like I read something um, about Smash Mouth about how Every day they they treat it like a job. They're like, we're gonna quit our jobs and we're gonna focus on getting signed. Like two guys in the band, and so they set up their bedroom like an office, and they were calling record labels every day, setting up showcases every day, just hustling, 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 hustling. You know, their work ethic is what got them signed because they used to play the Cactus Club, dude, and people would like make fun of them. Like, we're playing at the Cactus. No, just because of who they were. <laughs> who they were. <laughs> <laughs> they would, they'd make fun of him for just like being so pushy and trying to be so Joe Hollywood and then who's laughing now they got like platinum records you know right, right. So. did you play at the Cactus Club all the time I ended up doing sound there before I, before it closed that was one of my first jobs after recording college yeah was sound guy at the Cactus Club I mean I'm, I think I'm part of the, the new generation coming up and uh, when you talk to the older cats they're like they're always saying the golden age of uh, South Bay music was when the Cactus Club was happening in that block. Well, the funny thing is when it was around, it, people were ashamed to say they were playing there because we called it the Practice Club because anybody could get a gig there. It's like the CBGBs at San Jose. So they took it for granted? <laughs> totally took it for granted because then when it was gone, everybody's like crying and moping about how it's gone. I'm like, motherfucker, when it was here, you guys used to talk so much shit about that place. There, uh, It was such a shithole that at one point somebody broke the, the 
the urinal off the wall. Uh, the infamous bathroom. And they put a, a five-gallon painter's bucket in there. <laughs> and so I would get there at happy hour to start setting up the sound booth. And a lot of times we did happy hour shows. And they were free. And that was a place for you to cut your teeth. You bring 20 people to a happy hour show, you could probably bring 20 people to a Friday night. So you would have to play like a shitty night. They had like something called New View Night where it was like Monday night. And they would put five bands that were just bothering them for a show. And it would be like an industrial band, then a punk band, then a metal band, then like a, a rap group. And it was just like a hodgepodge of just, you want to play? Fine. You're playing Monday night. And if you bring 30 people, we'll give you a Saturday. That was it, right? So it was almost like a showcase for the booker in that sense. Like, nobody stayed for the whole show. They would show up to see their friend's band, and they're like, I'm not going to stick around for this goth band. Like, I came to see this hip-hop group or whatever, right? So that's how you can kind of tell who was there for who, because if you weren't there to see that band, you'd be outside smoking or whatever. So one time I'm setting up the sound gear, and this guy Blackie, who was the the bouncer at the time, is... (laughs) He had to go dump the five-gallon bucket because it was full. Oh, Jesus. So they'd, like, walk it out to the front and pour it in the gutter. (laughs) (laughs) And be like, why does it always smell like piss out in front of the Cax Club? And I'd just keep my mouth shut. I'm like, I don't know. That's why. I don't think that piss has left yet, though. (laughs) So Blackie's walking out of there, trying to walk out of there with the five-gallon bucket that's full. Have you ever tried to carry a bucket of water that's full? Yeah, yeah. What happens? It spills back and forth. Back and forth, yeah. All over you. Jesus. That was Blackie. Why does Blackie always smell like piss? I don't know. It's not his own. <laughs> it's not his own. It's a collection. <laughs> he's got he's got the, the piss of the city. You know, that's Seriously. that's that's what you're really smelling there. Seriously. Lots of DNA in that bucket. But yeah, that was a cool that was a cool gig. Learned a lot of shit. Uh, the Clifton's a whole MO was to like destroy the venue and piss them off and I don't know if you you're familiar with Andy Kaufman and Tony Clifton, right? His alter ego. Right. That movie, Man on the Moon. Uh-huh. We started the band right around that that movie coming out because we were just so inspired. Like we were, we were always Tony Clifton and, and and Andy Kaufman fans, but that movie just really brought it to life. Like uh, Jim Carrey really did those characters justice. And we're like, let's start a band where that's our alter ego. Like we're not us. We're we're Tony Clifton. Yeah. Where like our singer didn't drink, but Billy Bob Clifton was a drunk. So when we'd play shows. He'd start slamming Long Island iced teas. He didn't even drink, dude. So he'd be slamming those and taking mushrooms. And he was a vegetarian, and he'd eat fish and chips because it'd smell if he threw up. Oh. So he'd throw up at every gig. Like we, our goal was to never get asked back. And the crowd response was so good that it was our first band where we were getting calls from booking agents like, "We got to get you in here," or like. We would fuck up the backstage, the, the the Cactus Club. We broke holes in the walls backstage. We like kicked holes all over the walls. And then we grabbed the sheetrock. All the walls were painted black. And we were like, fuck you, the Cliftons. The Cliftons were here. And, like, just destroy places. And they'd throw us out. The bouncers would throw us out, like, by our collars. And then, like, three weeks later, they'd offer us a show again. We're like, hey, aren't you the guys that, like, threw us out? Yeah. And so it was exhilarating to get the attention and the draw. But it bummed us out because I had clay wheels. The other guys had other bands that were seriously trying and nobody gave a fuck and then the Clifton's we we would throw a song together in like five minutes and purposely rip off licks just to be just ter- like purposely terrible we were so terrible we were good and people wanted to see it you guys were like The Room that oh, film it's fucking it was so frustrating <laughs> so bad it's good yeah yeah exactly 
Well, what's I mean, what's the challenges now? Do you think for for punk rock in really trying to distinguish yourself? It's too fractured. and It's already been done. Yeah. There's too many places. There's too many websites. There's too many ways. There's too many bands. Everybody that has a, a MacBook and a GarageBand account can now be a band. Where before you had to rent a, a recording studio and really put in the work to get there, and now it's just like look at Rebound Town for example I mean that started in my house by myself with a cassette 4 track and a MySpace page I just happened to put in the work before I did that with other bands and put in the work after when I when I started but I mean you could be a band right now just grab that guitar right now on this podcast call it a band and boom it's out there and so before you'd go to the record store and there'd be the local section there's like things and then there's like Reverb Nation and it's like you put San Jose and there's thousands of bands you're like who are all these fucking people so you get lost in the shuffle yeah um, people don't come out to shows like they used to because there's so many other things to do now people are just stuck they can just be content sitting on their couch on their iPhone like that's entertainment now so before where it's like there's a punk show tonight you didn't know who the band was you never heard of them everybody would just go because it was just they're so bored you know there's something to do now it's just like everybody's got music everyone's got shows Everybody's got bands. Everybody's got... There's all these other ways to be entertained now with the internet and to find out about things. So it just... It's like getting a mirror and just hitting it with your fist and it's shattering and be like, here's your piece of it. Mm-hmm. You know? Never get the whole thing. Just uh-uh. the piece of it. Yeah. So like you play a show and there's it's like a half-empty hall because there's something else going on or some other form of entertainment rather than like, fuck, I'm bored. I just wish there was a punk show. Because I can't go on the internet and watch one. I can't go on the internet and listen to one. You know, I can go on the internet right now and just go down the YouTube rabbit hole and watch every band I grew up listening to actually perform me live on video in 1970-something or 60-something or 50-something. There's just so many forms of entertainment now. So it's super hard to stand out. And then the other thing is, oh, that's already been done. Like, I'm not going to give it any... There's nothing new. And if you try to do something new, it's going to sound like... I don't know. I just like what I like to listen to, and I put it in a blender. I like 50s rock and roll. I like 60s garage rock. I like surf rock. I like hardcore punk from the 70s and 80s. And so I just kind of like grab it all, throw it in a blender, and then what comes out is my my interpretation of it. Yeah. That's why there's like three or four different kind of sounds on all our records of like different styles of music. <laughs> but we're not doing anything original at all at all people are like oh you guys got your own sound no we don't uh, you just obviously haven't heard of the bands I'm ripping off <laughs> well Johnny looks like we reached the one hour mark it's been a pleasure having you here man great picking your brain and right a lot on, of fascinating things to, to really digest here um, <laughs> but before you go uh, usually I ask this question to a lot of musicians is can you talk about the evolution of your your favorite instruments from your first guitar or, or, or in, the, in your case your violin to what you're playing now yeah, they, uh, the music teacher came into third grade class and said, we're recruiting for the music class, and if you join, you get out of class for an hour a day. And I just shot my arm up. I'm all, fuck yeah, I'm in, because I didn't want to be in class. So I played violin in third grade. Fourth grade, uh, they they opened it up to more instruments. And my stepmom had a clarinet, and so I wouldn't have to buy anything. So I was like, I guess I'll play clarinet. That's a tough instrument. That's deceptively tough tough i don't know i just i have adhd i was like fuck yeah let's party <laughs> all those knobs and the wind uh, it's it's like the, the read it's, it's like the mixing board strip you learn a few and it's all the same okay and then uh fifth grade 
they're like, uh, the bass clarinet guy went on to junior high, so we need a bass clarinet player. And I'm like, well, what's it like? They're like, it's just like a regular clarinet, just bigger. I'm like, do you guys have one I could use? I'm like, yep, there's bass clarinet. Sixth grade, uh, alto clarinet, same thing. The alto clarinet guy went on to high school. Do you have an alto clarinet? Yeah, boom, alto clarinet. Um, eighth grade, the trumpet players went on to high school. Uh, we need a trumpet player. I'm like, you guys got one? Can I use it? Trumpet. Uh, then I played trumpet in uh, ninth grade, tenth grade. Um, I joined jazz band. They didn't have a bass player, and they're like, "We need a bass player." And I'm like, "My brother has a bass guitar in the the closet, like playing bass now." And then uh, my friend got a guitar that same year, and uh, I always wanted to play guitar. The only reason I played violin and all that other shit is because that was the only thing that was offered me. I wanted a guitar from day one. I asked for a guitar once. I saw Marty McFly. I was like, "I want a guitar." Never got it. My mom's like, "No, no, no, no." You need to play in orchestras. My friend got a guitar, and he started going to guitar lessons. And so when he'd come home from his guitar lesson, he would teach me what he learned. So I basically got free guitar lessons through the guitar lesson guy, through my friend. Oh, it's a hand down. Yeah, yeah. and then we started a band, Dysfunctional Squirrel. And, and uh, But my first guitar I got from the uh, same group of friends. His dad got it at a flea market and sold it to me. And I took it to Woodshop. It was my Woodshop project. I refinished it and all that shit. And it sucked. It was a terrible guitar. And then I got another guitar. And then uh, I bumped into... My band was playing uh, some show in uh, in Livermore. And I was watching this band. And they were they were awesomely bad. This this was the early... This is the guy that from the Clifton's. Uh, his first band. And... We were getting to talking. And he's like, "Yeah, dude, I want to start. Like, I want to, I want to jam with you." And he's like, "Do you play drums?" I'm like, "Do you have a drum kit?" And he's like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll be over tomorrow." I never played a drum kit. Then we later became a band, Nowhere Fast, which later morphed into the Clifton's. But that's it. Start with violin, then clarinet, alto, bass, trumpet, bass guitar, guitar, and then it ended up being drummer. So everything ended up happening just on its own by fate, like on accident it was never a choice what was the average uh, transition phase for you to actually start proficiently playing an instrument a couple couple weeks weeks. because you can apply what you learned on violin to clarinet and you can apply what you learned on clarinet to bass clarinet and you can apply once you learn how to like count and read music it's just like all right, show me the basics and then I'm just going to practice my ass off and figure it out and then with guitar and bass you know it's very visual Mm -hmm. And you could play by ear a lot. And so I had a leg up on all those guys in bands because they weren't in orchestras. All they played was a rock instrument that they taught themselves by listening to a record and playing along with it. So I'd be like, it's an A. They're all, what the fuck's A? I'm all, it's that string. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. in the key of B minor. What's that? Oh, fucking, it goes A, G, D. Yeah, I was what that the guy. fuck is A, G, D? I was the guy on the other like, side of that conversation. damn it. It was so frustrating. <laughs> and I think that's why I was so good in punk bands because I had something the other guys didn't have. I played in orchestras and went backwards to punk rock instead of starting in punk rock and going to an orchestra. I was classically trained in symphonic orchestras in jazz bands and then playing three-chord punk, and it was just so frustrating playing with these guys that couldn't play the instruments. I'm like, you motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> give me those sticks. Give me that bass. Like, yeah, yeah. it was all a blessing. It all happened for a reason, you know? Right, right. Anyways, I could talk all day about that shit. Well, what guitar are you playing now? What's the brand? Um... I'm playing a Fender Telecaster now, and then I just got this guitar made of skateboards. The whole guitar is made of skateboards. Wow. The neck, everything. And I played that last night for the first time. And it was pretty cool. Got a lot of like weird looks. Like, what is that thing? Well, it's a skateboard. And they're like, what? 
you flip it over and you can see it's a skateboard and then the neck is two skateboards glued together and then they route it down into the shape of a guitar so it has all the dyed plies from the skateboard Jesus. all striped out yeah, yeah, it's fucking sick. <laughs> so last night I played a skateboard, and it sounds you know, good, right? Sounds rad. Yeah, 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 it sounds like a Gibson SG. Oh wow, it's cool. Yeah, custom made or is there like a line? It of was those? a Kickstarter, and so they only made forty of this model, and I was one of the guys that donated to the Kickstarter. So I guess I have one one out of forty made, but I'll show it to you after that. That's awesome. It's cool, Johnny. Thank you for so much. Where can people check out your work? Uh, JohnnyManic.com, J-O-N-N-Y-M-A-N-A-K.com. Or Facebook, uh, Instagram, just Johnny Manic and the Depressives. We got uh, okay, got the latest album here, the Cold Pizza and Warm Beer. We actually uh, put out a split seven inch a couple months ago called Rock and Roll Depression that you can find on Spotify and uh, iTunes. Just any digital outlet, any online digital place you can find music. Put in Johnny Manic and the Depressives, YouTube, whatever. You'll find our entire catalog. We got five albums. And uh, four or five like EPs on there too. There's enough to get you bored. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you also do the artwork? Uh, no, that's Sean Aberg out of uh, Portland, Oregon. He he has a magazine called Pork Magazine. It's all weirdo art and rock and roll and stuff. And check out Pork Magazine for uh, some really cool weirdo art. But yeah, he did that. We commissioned him to do that. Nice, yeah. Johnny. We good? That's right. Did you have a good time? Yeah, I had a great time. Thank all you for having me. Thank you, Johnny, for coming. Right on. That guy is the real deal. Check him out at johnnymanic.com. Download his music, share his music. Trust me, it is worth it. On the way out, he gave me a free copy of his album of uh, Cold Pizza, Warm Beer, and I've been headbanging all the way to work on the way back home from work or anytime I go out I got that CD in my car and it's totally worth it it's a good way to impress your friends they're like oh man this is awesome who is this guy I'm like this is Johnny Manic and the Depressives they're cool where, where's this, where is this guy from oh this guy's from San Jose and they go what and you're like yeah so definitely check him out at johnnymanic.com alright guys that's it for this week until next week have a good one have a great Sunday and please support jmspodcast.com, share it around, and, um, and yeah, so until next time.